Welcome back to the Starbase Indie Podcast, where we talk to and about people who are inspired by Star Trek or science fiction to work towards hopeful futures in the real world. I'm here with Dr. Mohammed Noor. Uh, how do you introduce yourself when you say hi to people usually? Uh, usually I just say I'm a professor. Well, it depends on the context. I say, sure. If In the Star Trek context, I say I'm a professor of biology and an occasional consultant for Star Trek. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you don't introduce yourself as the bio Trekkie. I don't usually introduce myself, <laughs> but, but that is my YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. Also, you can just go to biotrekkie.com. That's a website that has links to various uh, events and, and videos and things like that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so when did you first get interested in Star Trek? So I first, the first episode of Star Trek I saw, and I can, I even remember which episode it was, was on a trip and it was for the world is hollow and I've touched the sky. And this was probably like late seventies. I wasn't, I wasn't alive on the original series here, but um, it's late seventies. So I was, you know, seven, eight, something like that. And we're on a trip and this was on TV. And I remember just being fascinated by this episode. Like this was really interesting. Here's the, here's this group of travelers who've gone to this world and the people on this world don't understand what it is that they're on and <laughs> they don't appreciate what's happening there. And after I watched, I had heard the word Star Trek before, and I think I'd seen Star Wars already by this time, but I had heard the word Star Trek, but I didn't really know what it was. So when I got back home, I was like, I need to look this up. I need to find this. So at that point, I watched all the original series. Somehow, I don't think I even knew there was an animated series from the 70s, or maybe it wasn't available. I mean, this was obviously before Netflix or anything like that. So mm-hmm. anyway, I just wasn't even aware of that. But from then on, I just watched everything as it came out, you know, Wrath of Khan, all the movies, and then Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, everything. I just kept on top of it from there on out. I was I was definitely hooked, and that's never changed. <laughs> No, actually, I should say it almost changed that the, the finale of season two of Next Generation, the clip show one, I think it's called Shades of Grey. That one almost had me quit. <laughs> How come? But what about it? I just hate clip shows. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that, that really turned me off. And already like the first two seasons of Next Generation were, were you know, mixed, as I think most people would agree. In, so indeed, I, yes. They were just <laughs> kind of coming back, right? They hadn't. Was, yeah. found their footing quite yet they found their footing yeah and there yes. were some gems in there but it was, oh absolutely like, solidly mixed <laughs> yeah yeah well i mean a lot of series it takes a season or two to really get absolutely. your get your feet under you absolutely yeah so for your sort of your day job your research focuses on what genetic changes contribute to the formation of a new species so yeah. what does make a new species that's a great question so i should clarify just to be clear i don't work on humanoids i'm not looking at what differentiates a human from a volcano or even yes. from a neanderthal or anything like that but i'm actually using different uh, fruit fly species these are within the genus called drosophila so the species i've worked on the longest are called drosophila pseudobscura it's a funny name, pseudo obscura, <laughs> Drosophila persimilis. These are two North American fruit flies. They look exactly the same. Like if you catch them, and I have gone out in the wild and caught them, they're found in Western North America. If you catch them, they look exactly the same. However, a subset, not 100%, but a subset of the hybrids are sterile and females preferentially mate with their own kind. So obviously females can tell males of being this species for that versus that species. And those are two of the kinds of things that, that differentiate species. And essentially what, what species are are distinct gene pools. Like, you know, here's this group with, with which, you know, a lot, there's a lot of gene exchange. So within Drosophila pseudobscura, they can all interbreed. There's lots of gene flow. Within Persimilis, there's lots of gene flow. But between the two groups, there's very, very, very little because the females will almost never mate with the other species. And even when they do, a subset of the hybrids tend to be sterile. 
So that, that gives you an, an indication of what's happening. So what I do in my lab and what my, my students and, and postdocs more accurately do in my lab and my technicians is that they will look at what, are, what is the genetic basis of these traits? Why are hybrids sterile? What's the combination of gene fragments from this species versus that species that results in hybrid sterility or results in, you know, or, or what are the genes in one species that make it so a female can discriminate from the other species? So they have to be able to tell and they, do. they look alike, but they, there's somehow, do, do you know how they can tell? We think it's largely behavioral. In the, uh, so what happens when a male fruit fly wants to mate with a female fruit fly, he comes up and he, and he extends a wing and he vibrates it. It makes a very species specific courtship sound or song, something they actually call it a song. And you can record it and amplify it. And if you listen to them, it's very, very easy to tell. Like if you, if you listen to the, one of them, it sounds like <sighs> that's Drosophila pseudobscura. It was Persimilis. The, the, the beats are much more distinct. It's more like so it's a higher frequency of each beat, but then um, a greater interval between each pulse. So you can really hear them very distinctly. And actually, if you watch really closely while they're doing, you can actually see a slight difference in how they're fluttering too, just looking at it even. So um, you've been studying genetics for your whole career. So what and you've always been a science fiction fan. So what yeah. parts of genetics have you seen science fiction get really right? Oh, wonderful question. So I think that the really basic aspects of genetics tend to be very accurate in science fiction. So things like, you know, is a gene variant dominant? So for example, we've seen in Star Trek, to use my favorite, <laughs> my favorite case thing, um, it, when they say the Klingon brow ridges are dominant, meaning that if you have a group that hasn't, a group that doesn't, you know, like I said, humans and Klingons, the interbreed, the, F, the F1s, the, the hybrid offspring will have the brow ridges and they call that dominant. That's correct. Yeah, that is, that is what a dominant trait would do. So that's the thing I think that they get very, very, very well. And what's interesting is Star Trek tends to reflect the genetics knowledge at the time. So sometimes they get things uh, wrong in the long run, but right for what was known at that time. So one great example I like is from Next Generation. Um, Dr. Crusher, I think it was at some point in time, made a comment about 100,000 genes and uh, that humans have, and that was the estimate in like you know 1990 or so. <laughs> it was 100,000 genes, but that was before we actually sequenced the the human genome, and it's actually quite a bit fewer than that. It turns out. <laughs> How many do we have? It's on the order of like 20 to 30,000. Depends on exactly what what you call a gene, quote unquote. <laughs> So what have you seen science fiction get sort of spectacularly wrong talking about genetics? Big one, and this is throughout, is mutation. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> it's so extreme. And now, now, there's all sorts of different ways things get wrong. So, uh, and, and actually even evolution is another one, but we can come back to mutation. I mean, when, pe when people say like, oh, that's a mutant, and especially when, when it's something that's induced, let's say, for example, Jordy goes into the cave and then like all of a sudden he undergoes a mutation. Like, what? What does that mean? He undergoes a mutation. Like, you know, he has a whole, he has, you know, thousands of millions, whatever of cells. Did they all undergo the same? A mutation is just a genetic change. Did they all undergo the same one? Like, how did that happen? That is always spectacularly wrong. I mean, what could happen, you know, is if, you know, Jordy was a one cell embryo, <laughs> and then there was a mutation, it would then propagate and then it would be in all his body as an adult. That's not the way it usually happens. Usually it's something that's induced from the outside. And all of a sudden, you know, now he's a salamander. That wasn't Jordy, but still. <laughs> that would never happen. Like anything which suddenly increases the rate of mutation, as was the case, for example, in Voyager Threshold. The most likely outcome of that would be random cancers all over and death. <laughs> That's way more likely than transmutation to this other thing. The other thing is too, is it wouldn't propagate except through cell division. So even if he did have all these different mutations, 
it's not like you would suddenly become something else. It would, it would have to process at the rate of cell division for each of those cells. And, you know, some cells propagate very, very slowly. So, yeah, that that's always rather shockingly bad. <laughs> so we're in very little danger of becoming salamanders, at least not because of our genetics. Absolutely correct. And, and we don't, and, you know, uh, jumping back to another uh, Star Trek example, like Genesis, we don't retain fragments of like past forms that then can just be simply turned on to make us something that, you know, one of our ancient ancestors was. I mean, for example, like we might've, yes, at some point in time, way back in history, we had genes that would have resulted in fins rather than arms. Those genes are long since broken up and destroyed and things like that. You can't just, boom, now you're, now you're going to be a fish. No. <laughs> well, that's that, comforting. That is comforting. Speaking <laughs> of that, evolution is another big one too. A big thing, which is really fundamental is individuals don't evolve. Individuals develop. So example I like to say is like, I was a baby. I didn't evolve from a baby to an adult. I developed from a baby to an adult. Evolution is over generations. It's not something that, it, that an individual does. And this is something that Pokemon also gets very wrong. <laughs> which is I love Pokemon. <laughs> so what do you call it when you go from like a caterpillar to a butterfly? It's not, it's not an evolution. It's oh, well, development's the general term for that particular one. You think metamorphosis. Okay. <laughs> Okay. So yeah. So Pokemon might metamorphosize, but they don't yes. evolve. Absolutely. Exactly. So I mean, the, they're redefining the word. I mean, if, if, if one accepts the redefining the word, that's okay. But from the traditional term, that would, that would not apply. <laughs> Traditionally it's generations, not exactly. just not weeks or months or. Yeah. Not, well, I mean, if it's a, if it's a bacteria, it could be weeks or months. <laughs> well, that's true. Right. Generations can be much shorter than we exactly. think. Of. Or the fruit flies we work with. I mean, they're like two to three weeks per generation. So. And we do see evolution can happen that fast for some of them too. And what what are some examples viruses. that you've seen of evolution in your in your clinical or your uh, fruit flies? Oh, and fruit flies. So we actually have an activity that we developed for classrooms. Actually, this is specifically targeted for high school classes. It's it's actually a kit that we actually uh, gave to Carolina Biological Supply. So you can actually go to Carolina Biological Supply and just order this kit, and it's called. Uh, uh, something like the evolution by natural selection kit or something like that or just awful. And what it is, is you, you get this population of wide-eyed fruit flies and you insert like one fly that has red eyes in it and just, and then let it propagate for a couple of generations. And then the red eye variant spreads more and more because go figure it can see better. <laughs> so I think I well. remember doing that in high school or something similar, red eyes and white eyes. Yeah. I'm sure you, I'm sure you did the inheritance with it, but we, we decided to broaden it out to an evolution kit, which makes it really cool where you see over, over a couple of generations, it gets more and more common. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That makes sense. Cause it gives them a, it gives them a, a mating advantage, a reproductive advantage. I mean, they can see better. <laughs> Whereas the white ones are like, not quite, but almost completely blind. <laughs> Definitely a relative disadvantage. I mean, they're okay on their own which is a big thing with evolution. It's not necessarily that the other form is bad. It's just that the new form is better. So in terms of uh, reproducing. So you teach a course at Duke University called Genetics, Evolution, and Star Trek. I Why did course. you focus on Star Trek and not just science fiction? Oh, just because I love Star Trek. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> that was a big part of it, but I, there's more to it than that. So um, the, the class essentially came out of a book that I wrote. It's Live Long and Evolve, What Star Trek Can Teach Us About Evolution, Genetics, and Life on Other Worlds. So that was the introductory, I mean, sorry, the content of that was essentially the introductory course that's taught for all majors at Duke University's Bio 202 Genetics and Evolution. It essentially follows the same things. There's a chapter on evidence for evolution. There's a chapter on what is DNA and how does, how does DNA lead to proteins and how does DNA, you know, 
change over time, things like that. There's a, chap there's a chapter on natural selection, different types of natural selection. There's topical things like exactly like what we talked about earlier in the context of what makes new species, things like that. But I wrote it in the book in the context of Star Trek examples. So saying like in episode, you know, in, in the trouble with tribbles, they said that uh, tribbles are, a are bisexual rather than asexual. What's the difference between those two things? We went into that in some depth in the book, for example. Uh, you know, we talked about hybrids and being fertile and things like that in there too. So after I wrote that as a general public book, I thought, well, this would be really fun as a, as a non-majors introductory biology course, because it's basically the same as the regular introductory biology course, a little bit lighter level, admittedly, but it has this interesting narrative that everybody can follow. And it's a narrative that I know very well, but it's very, part of it was I wanted something that was contained. And, you know, I didn't want it to just be in, because otherwise there's just way, way too many examples you can go into if we just use all of science fiction in general. The other thing, of course, with Star Trek is, generally speaking, Star Trek tries to have a fairly firm scientific basis for everything that's there. And it's one of the reasons it's, it's hired, you know, science consultants over the years, like Andre Bormanis in, in, the, in the 1990s, for example. Um, there's very little use of magic. There's some, but there's very little use of magic. And, and they try to have a fairly firm basis for all of it. So that was really good. All internally consistent. You know, I, I thought that was a good place to do it. And I love doing that class. <laughs> it's so much fun. And what we do is literally in the class, um, well, I'll, I'll introduce the topic very briefly. We'll watch either a part of or sometimes even a whole Star Trek episode rela you know, related to that topic. And we'll have activities and problems and things like that. The very end of the semester, the students will actually um, do an independent project and they can come up with whatever it is. This is partly because I didn't know what to do. So I said, well, let me leave this to their creativity. And that was probably the single best teaching decision I ever made was leaving this to their creativity. I said, come up with something that leverage it doesn't even have to leverage star trek though most of them did because i said i mean the critical piece isn't obviously star trek for their knowledge the critical piece is the biology but sure. come up with some way that to show or represent to other people um multiple concepts that you learned over the course of this class and what many of them did is they do like a star trek script or something like that they had really good science and, and it illustrated things like that some of them actually went went all all in and they would like film it and they would get other students as actors not necessarily even ones from the class but other students as actors in it and you can find some of these on youtube now it's like it's amazing with some of them. some of them did things around like the star trek some would like say i'm gonna do a really cool rap like okay evolution rap or genetics rap sure i'll take it <laughs> That's amazing. I'll have it's, to go look some of those up. Oh, it's so much. I can send you a link or two, too. It's so Oh, excellent. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah, I'll send you a Harry Wong's in particular. Harry, Harry's was like over the top. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> excellent. I love his name. is kind of a, a hybrid of Harry Kim and Garrett Wong, too. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> uh, so in your book, you quote Asimov's complaint that science fiction has lacked imagination when it comes to new life. What are some of the more imaginative life forms you've seen on Star Trek? That's a great question. Um, two, I'll, I'll mention two. So I'll talk about one classic one and one modern one. So the classic one, which I thought was really interesting, was what I think it ended up being called the microbrain in the next generation. This was microscopic, which of course, microscopic life is way, way, way more likely than anything we'd be able to see, right? Because I mean, if you think about the first couple of billion years of life here on earth, everything was microscopic and unicellular and things like that. So clearly that, that's the way to go. And still, you know, the bulk of life today would be along those lines. Now, whether it could become sentient and all work together and, and drive everything else, that's another question. But I liked it both for the microscopic aspect, but also that it wasn't carbon-based, it was silicon-based. So again, it was, it was thinking outside the box. It wasn't just, you know, a human with a funny forehead, <laughs> or those sorts of things. Um, and, it, and it was interesting. It had the little flashes of light, and we know some things like that can't be bioluminescent. It was just—it was really different from most of the things that we tend to see in science fiction. I like that. 
Modern, I don't know if you saw the most recent season of Star Trek Discovery. So this would be season four, just, just to make this timely. <laughs> the most, uh, that season introduced the species 10C. And this was a species very, very, very unlike anything we'd ever seen before. They, they live on gas giant planets. They communicate by chemical communication. Then we, we'll, I'm sure we're going to return to that topic a little bit later on in, in our discussion today. Uh, you know, the, their form was not in, even remotely humanoid. Like, I love that. I thought that was really cool. I did actually. I'll give a, I'll give a plus one to one other I didn't mention too. Is I, I think the um, Tholians are really cool. <laughs> what is cool about the Tholians? Well, part of it is you know how how they're sort of this almost rock kind of shape in terms of what they do. They also don't live at standard temperatures that we're used to living at. That their their preferred temperature is much 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 warmer, and at our temperature they'd actually be suffering. It's a good reminder that you know we we tend to assume life uh, would exist in exactly the same circumstances that we see now, but it's because life evolved here on Earth that it likes the conditions on Earth. If life evolved someplace else, it would presumably evolve to, to fit that particular environment. So that's something that we often tend to forget. Yeah, we think that the life that we're going to encounter is going to be more likely to enjoy the same environment we do, but that yeah. may not be what's mostly out there. Yeah, and, and that's a really important question when, when people are looking for life now. And I, I know uh, NASA and other and uh, various astrobiologists are sensitive to that, that you know, if we were, to, let's say, for example, we were to find some microbial life on Enceladus or some moon of Jupiter or whatever and bring it back, bring it back could kill it. <laughs> it could be like, this is toxic in so many different ways or so hot or cold or whatever the temperature difference is that it happens to be encountered. So one of the things that uh, astrobiologists are trying to do now is figuring out how they can tell if something is alive in situ, like sending like a probe someplace and somehow being able to assess in a truly agnostic fashion, they, do, they always call it agnostic in the context of not making any assumptions of what that life should look like, if it's alive and, and to assess if it's complex enough to be what we would consider to be alive. Aside from the, you know, if it's swimming, that's, then it's kind of obvious. <laughs> yeah, because what is alive is a pretty complicated question, even on this planet, much less in the universe. Yeah. And it's a big question of time scale too. Like we tend to think life will be, let's say that something is swimming. Like we tend to think it'll be swimming at a speed we'd be able to see, but maybe it's doing it so fast we can't even see it. And it has come up in Star Trek and even in the original series or the other extreme where, you know, yes, it is having all these physiological processes, but you know, each one takes like an eon or not an eon, an eon be very long. <laughs> let's say a millennium. <laughs> Doesn't mean it's not alive. It's just operating at a completely different time scale than we are. So you're actually contributing to the science in Star Trek right now, because along with Dr. Aaron McDonald, you are a science advisor for Star Trek. So how did that happen? Sure. Besides so, the fact that you're super cool. No, oh, come on. That, you're very kind. <laughs> well, I should contrast my role with Dr. McDonald's first, because that's very mm -hmm. important to do. So Dr. McDonald is the science advisor for the Star Trek universe. Right? She is like on retainer by C Paramount CBS to help with all the different shows. So my role is, is I like to say, um, She's the sheriff of science, and I'm somebody who's occasionally deputized to help out. So when they need something that Dr. McDonald is, and maybe it's outside her expertise, I will occasionally get a call saying like, hey, can you help out with this one little thing? So she's like the main person, and I'm somebody who's occasionally called in to help out. I, I, I always like the contrast because people sometimes make a sound equivalent, like, no, 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 no. She's like the real science advisor. I'm somebody who occasionally gets a call to help. So I've done this with, uh, for example, Discovery and... Um, a little bit with Prodigy. And then just every now and then Dr. Aaron herself would just text me something and just, she'll just send me one line of dialogue and say, is this, does this look okay? And sometimes I don't even know what show it's from. <laughs> it's just, okay, I'm going to just answer the question and not ask anything else. So for me, it came about, actually, it's funny because Aaron and I started, uh, started around the same time, but from different routes. Um, 
for me, um, I met Jane Brooke, who plays Admiral Katrina Cornwell in Discovery at, uh, I think it was the 2018 Dragon Con. She actually came to a talk that Dr. Aaron and I were doing together on science in Star Trek Discovery. And she came up to me afterwards and chatted with me saying, hey, you know, I'm a Duke graduate. I was like, oh, that's really cool. And I, I invited her to come to Duke and actually speak at the class we were talking about earlier and things like that. <laughs> she was always funny. She's always like, you know, I'm a theater major, not a biology major. I'm like, yeah, but still, I mean. I want, I want people to have like big picture thinking. Like we're, we're a liberal arts college, right? In the sense, we want people to have a broad view, not just the biology aspect to it too. And it's nice because she actually started in biology. Anyway, she came to that and I gave her a copy of my book and she went through and she had annotated it. She had like so many comments and questions written out throughout. I love her curiosity. It's part of why we ended up doing a, a, a web series together. But um, she mentioned that she knew one of the writers and I said, you know, I would love to consult and I don't, I have no idea how to make that happen. She said, well, let me connect you with one of the writers. So she connected me with the writer, writer connected me with the showrunner. That was uh, Michelle Paradise for Star Trek Discovery. And Michelle called me up. We had a great chat and she said, yeah, you know, we'd love to bring you on to help. Uh, we're, we're, we're about to start season three. Uh, we have a physicist who's also going to be helping at the same time. Now, her name is uh, Dr. Aaron McDonald. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, yes, I know her. <laughs> I know again, her. Full circle. Full circle, like, yeah. Where we met. <laughs> We'd already been giving talks together. So that was great. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. So uh, can you share any of the science stories sure. that you have shaped? Sure. So sure? actually, we, we just mentioned one recently, which was the, the hydrocarbon aspect for um, season four of Star Trek Discovery was something that I had pushed for. Uh, they had asked, the, the, the writers had asked for some sort of truly alien communication. They wanted a whole alien, alien in general, but truly alien form of communication. They didn't want it to be something where like universal translators just making this work. So I pointed out there's a lot of species on Earth that use chemical communication. That's something that's not really come up in the context of Star Trek. So, I mean, it's alien in the sense that we don't, we don't, think of it a lot but it actually is quite common <laughs> here on earth among the animals that we tend to see so they, they were all in for that idea. i said yeah let's go with chemical cremation that's great so i suggested this idea then of using hydrocarbons in particular hydrocarbons are just molecules that have carbon and hydrogen as the name would imply uh, the nice thing about carbon is carbon can bind to four atoms so you can make really complex different sorts of shapes so you know you can make you know an infinite, basically, number of different sorts of molecules from that. So if you wanted to make any sort of alphabet or words or whatever, if you, I was thinking of each of the hydrocarbons almost, or especially the sets of hydrocarbons to be something like a, um, like a Mandarin word character or something like that. And that works pretty well. Now, I should note, uh, to give credit where credit is due, I can't with give like the hydrocarbons and some of the specifics around that, but actually some linguists were brought on for season four. This is Sherry Wells Jensen and Doug Vekoch from uh, METI, uh, Messaging Extraterrestrial Intelligence. So they came up with a, sort of the linguistics of how this leads to a language. And I think it's called the Linkos language. They did that aspect to it, whereas I was more focused on the mechanistic basis and what these things could look like, things like that. But so, I mean, it's, it's great because it's such a team effort with everything. It, it's so cool. It's like science. Yeah. Cross-science collaboration. That is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so in the show, mm -hmm. the characters, the, the crew members experience these hydrocarbons almost as emotions. Yeah. Is that is that how we would experience a combination of hydrocarbons? How does that work? That's a great question. So essentially, um, when you think about pheromones, pheromones are basically chemicals that elicit some sort of response in us. People tend to think of pheromones always in the context of mating. It doesn't have to be mating. It can be all sorts of other things too. Um, there is, and you, you actually went right to the point that there is, there is a leap. I should say a leap. I don't want to call it a flaw. <laughs> There's a leap in, in all this thinking, which is that the emotions that are... Um, 
elicited by exposures to these particular hydrocarbons would be the same in us as in kelpians as in 10 c that's probably very unlikely right because you know we encounter you know hydro we encounter pheromones from all sorts of other species all the time but we don't start responding to them like we don't see the aggregation pheromone from ants outside and start aggregating with other people or anything like that <laughs> so that was one reason that in the dialogue well first it's 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 brought up. It's not solved, but it's just brought up in the dialogue where I think Saru makes the comment like, oh, that's interesting. I'm a Kelpian and it made the same thing happen to me. But yes, that is interesting. <laughs> we're not going to solve it, but we're just going to at least acknowledge that that is interesting. Actually, in the, in the discussions, I suggested maybe we could have it happen with like grudge in some way, but that didn't, that didn't make it into the, into the final version. But actually, that wouldn't be as good. Kelpians are better because to some extent, we know grudge evolved here on Earth too, whereas Saru did not. So. Um, the one thing we did push for, or I did push for, was that uh, that they'd be complex hydrocarbons. I think they said that in the, in the dialogue several times, rather than just hydrocarbons. Because I think in some of the original things, they had something very simple, like you know, a carbon with four hydrogens or something like that. I'm like, no, that's methane. That's like, that can't elicit an emotion because that means every time we pass gas, we would have like an emotion of love or something like that. I don't know. I, I've had some emotions when I've encountered methane. I think. Yeah. <laughs> I've so. made faces. That's related to emotion, right? <laughs> awesome <laughs> but anyway the complexity just makes it so like this is something that humans probably have never encountered so we don't know what it would elicit so we just left it at that <laughs> so are there Embrace any the errors that you've managed to save them from making on the show that you can talk about i, I couldn't i mean there's maybe just a couple of wording things that would be funny I don't remember anything where something was actually going to be, you know, clearly wrong, but it's, it's more like nobody would ever say this sentence this way, you know, that kind of thing where it's like, let's, let's, let's get rid of those words there and, and not make it so gobbledygookish. <laughs> it's often, it's funny because often it's, it's more like I'm trying to simplify it because they'll have something like, okay, those words don't even go together. Just, just drop the second one. You know, <laughs> you don't need it. <laughs> Yeah, no, they're actually, what's interesting is the writers are really, really into science. And the number of times that the Star Trek writers will be on a Zoom with me, they're like, what you do is so cool. I'm like, are you serious? You write Star Trek. <laughs> you're, like, you're telling me what I do is cool. <laughs> well, I mean, it is, but oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so what has been your favorite part of getting to work on Star Trek, just in a in addition to the fact that you're working on Star Trek? Yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to put something beyond that one. I mean, I, I love the embrace of science by all parties. So the embrace of science in the writer's room, like they, they, I mean, the, the mere fact they pay money to have somebody consult on getting like just a couple of lines of dialogue, right. Or like a fairly minor aspect to it. That's a big deal, right? Like, you know, a lot of, a lot of people just wouldn't care. Like whatever, just say anything. I always make fun of the same show. I'll do it again though. Even though I love the show, but CW is the flash. They clearly don't have a science consultant. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the stuff that even my son who's in high school is like, that is ridiculous. <laughs> anyway, fair enough. You know, it's fun. It's still enjoyable to watch, but the fact that they care enough to make it, you know, have good science in there is huge. Uh, the actors are really into it. I mean, I mentioned Jane Brooks' engagement, things like that. On the cruise, I mean, uh, um, on the most recent Star Trek cruise, uh, Anthony Rapp came to several of our talks. <laughs> it was like, you know, he's very keen on hearing about Even come to, I don't know if you saw the post-cruise video, he even he highlighted as one of his favorite things the cruise is the science talks. Like, okay. The fans, I mean, the number of people who show up for a talk on evidence for evolution or on genetic ancestry testing and race, you know, on their vacation. <laughs> It's so impressive. I just love this overall 
embrace of science everywhere, you know, start to finish from the developers to the, the people who are actually performing it to the, the consumers of the media. It's fantastic. And actually that was elicited too at, you know, Ohio. shout out to Starbase Indy. I mean, the mere fact that you guys would have me there and that people would show up for these talks, that speaks volumes to me. I love it. Yeah. I mean, when we decided to take a look at our mission and where we were going to be for the future, that science thing kept floating to the top because yeah. people are interested in it and curious about how the world works. Absolutely. I love that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you were a guest at Starbase India in 2017. And yes. it, one of my favorite things is that your author photo in your book was taken on our bridge. Yeah. Kudos to Savannah O'Connor for taking that photo. Thank you, Savannah. Actually, yeah. I saw her at Mission Chicago just a couple of weeks ago. Yep. Yep. She was up there. Uh, so what did you enjoy about Starbase Indy? Oh my gosh. What did I not enjoy about Starbase Indy? A shorter answer. I love everything about it. I think I'm trying to think that might be the first time I went to a smaller convention, I mean, smaller meaning like under say 1500 people or something like that. Um, getting to meet, I mean, from the very beginning there, getting to meet such a large fraction of the participants there was huge. So, I remember that one of the first events there at Starbase Indy was this uh, dinner under the stars or something. I can't remember exactly what it was called, but mm -hmm. something like dinner under the stars, but it was this great casual dinner. And like lots of people were like there and they were eager to chat and wanting to talk about science, wanting to talk about Star Trek. And you, the smaller size of it made it so repeated encounters were much more likely where, you know, you could just see the same person over and over again throughout there. The, I mean, shout out to you. The organization of it was amazing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like everything start to finish was just like, boom, 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 boom. It all just, I mean, from my end, it looked, you know, super easy and simple, but like, I know from you guys, you probably were working your butt off to make it, <laughs> make it come off like Goal that. is for it to look easy. <laughs> 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 but and all the talent that were there were very fan friendly like it's not i won't pick on specific people there are some people who you could imagine at a star trek convention who they come in they do their panel and then like they're gone you don't see them again except that they're signing table where they're just very quickly signing things and asking for money everybody there i think john billingsley was there uh, mark okrand was there um i sure remember who else was there at the same time bob uh, o'reilly bob o'reilly was there mm -hmm. too they were all like fully engaged with everybody. And, you know, they were, I mean, I saw multiple of them at the Starbucks that morning, just, you know, chatting it up with other people as they'd walk up. I mean, you clearly, you know, I think you were targeting probably the, the people who would be very, very high on the fan engagement end, which I thought was wonderful. It was just great to just, you know, chat with the people, chat with the talent. And the events were great. I mean, you had a, a really nice mix. You had somebody who was an astronaut. I don't remember his name. There's somebody who was an astronaut who was there who gave a, a really interesting talk about like his process getting into space and things like that. So yeah, Dr. Wolf. Yep. Yeah, that was his name. Dr. Yeah, David exactly. Wolf. I hadn't met him before, but he, he seemed cool. Yeah. yeah. No, everything, everything about it, start to finish, I loved. I, I would very much, and I have, and, and many other podcasts, not just on your podcast, I have very often encouraged people, like, you should go check out Starbase Indy. If you're anywhere in, remotely in the area, or just interested in something that's not, like, gargantuan scale, where, like, you can actually, like, meet multiple people, meet the fans, meet the talent in a in smaller setting. I love that about it. And have just fantastic talks and everything, too. Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. We don't... Um... We don't have we don't have the budget to bring in people who are really high end people who just are there for the money. We no one will come to our little baby event if they're not interested, sincerely interested in in engaging with the fans. And um, sometimes that takes a minute for people to understand why that is a feature, not a bug, because yeah. we really do get folks who are just interested in interacting with other people who are passionate about the same things they are. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's absolutely a feature. I can say that because I, I think people are really excited right at first. Like, oh, I get to see, and I won't say any names, but 
random big name person who you never will mm-hmm. get to talk to. You know, it's well enough, but I mean, especially now, if you just look on YouTube, I'm sure you can find a panel. (laughs) Yeah, like you can do that for free and save yourself the travel expenses and save yourself going like, yeah, I guess you could say you saw them in person, but (laughs) and yeah, you can stand in that super long line for the autograph and the and the like two second interaction. I guess (laughs) I'd rather go to Starbase Indy personally. (laughs) Yeah, well, I love that. So, what's next for you? Uh, you know, in terms of events, um, yeah, I'm, or, I'm, or just the the work that you're doing, or what what are you doing next? Okay, well, let me start with the Star Trek side, and I'll do the the regular work side. Star Trek side, I'm going to AwesomeCon, or at least I'm slated to go to AwesomeCon in DC June. I think it's June 3rd to 5th. So I'm going to be giving just one talk there, though it's pretty short. It's a genetics, genetic ancestry testing, race, and Star Trek. And then I'm also going to Star Trek Las Vegas, which now is called 56-year mission <laughs> um, in late August, which now is going to be at Bally's rather than at the usual hotel. So that those are the, those are the Star Trek events that I have already scheduled for the next couple of months. Work-wise, I have a big thing coming up. So right now, so I'm a professor of biology, as I mentioned before. I'm also serving as right now as dean of natural sciences, meaning I oversee the administration of the eight science departments, natural science departments at Duke University. So that's like biology, chemistry, computer science, physics, math, statistics, et cetera. Um, the person who's one level up from me, the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, has just taken on a role as president someplace else. So starting July 1st, they asked me if I'd step in as interim dean of the College of Arts and Sciences. So it'll be instead of eight farms, it'll be 38 departments. <laughs> Much broader, it includes like dance, theater, economics, history, and all the sciences still. So that, that'll that be. How exciting. New... Congratulations. Thank you. It'll be a new set of duties. <laughs> I just I just hope I do okay. <laughs> I'm sure you'll do great. Oh, thank you. So where can people find you on the web? We've talked a little about this at the beginning, but what's sure. the easiest way to, to find you? Absolutely. So on social media, it's M like Michael, A, F like Frank, Noor, and like November O-O-R, at Mafnoor, at on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. Uh, on on YouTube, if you search for Biotrekkie, B-I-O-T-R-E-K-K-I-E, I have a channel there where I have both solo videos, which, you know, they're very short videos, usually about seven to 10 minutes going over one or two biology concepts. Also have a series with Jane Brooke. It's called Biotrekkie with the Admiral, where we go through science and episodes of Star Trek Discovery. And I have a website, just biotrekkie.com. So that's it. Excellent. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you for having me. And thank you for running Starbase India. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Starbase Indie podcast. To find more information about our live event this November, check us out at starbaseindie.org or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. See you on the Starbase.